0: Good to have you here, and uh, I want to stretch it tonight, and this is a a new study we've been doing, uh, coming into verse 15, and uh, I think it's going to end up being three, maybe four different studies, and uh, it's hard to believe we've been over. Actually, uh, at the retreat, we're going to be in verse 15 Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, so you know what to pray for. And we're probably going to divide this up into two parts with the teams. And then uh, look at the last half of verse 15. We're going to look at 15a tonight. 15a tonight. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look at uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 15. And since we've got so much to go through, we're going to be a little bit. Uh, we're going to be a little bit short on the recap, but I want to make sure that we're on the same page. Uh, again, if you're just joining us, and I know some, there's a few new faces here, glad to have you here tonight. We've been walking through um, Titus chapter 1, verses 10, and tonight we'll be in the verse 15. So we will do 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and now we're in verse 15. And what we found is that this is a... It's, it's a unique letter in the New Testament. There's only three like it. They're pastoral epistles. They're not written to churches, but they're written to individuals in churches. Um, and they're not just written to individuals in churches like the book of Philemon is. The, uh, you know, this is a letter that's written to, uh, from an apostle to an apostle. So if you ever wanted to you know, kind of have behind closed doors detailed documentation of, of what leaders in the early church were talking about, And their heart cry for the church, this is that. And then let me just say that again. If you ever wanted to sit in on the apostles behind closed doors and what their heart cry was later on in their life for the early church, this gives us that, which is really, yeah, really significant, I think. And so Paul is sharing his heart with Titus, who's his protege, of course. And if you were to divide this book up, if you were going to study it for yourself, and I would, I would strongly encourage you to study Titus. Um, he divides the book in half. The first half of the book is dedicated to individual groups within the church. So he's got specific instruction for leaders. If you want to know what you should expect of a pastor, of a, an elder, of you know, an evangelist, a teacher, an apostle, a prophet, someone that's operating in authority in the church, he gives you that in chapter 1, verses 5-9. through nine. Then he deals with this group of rebellious people in the church who are legalistic. They're not filled with the spirit, but they're still religious. Get in the middle of the beginning of chapter 2, he deals with godly younger men and godly younger women older men and older women and, and indentured servants. And he goes through all those details. In the last half of the book, he talks about how the body and its diversity, which is interesting. is all the groups that he talks about, from elders to the indentured servants, they all have different characteristics. A godly older woman is not to behave like a godly younger woman. They're just gifted differently. They, they're, you know, and and, and, and elders and and, how, and their role in the church. You never retire from, from Christian ministry. And so he gives you all those details. But then he talks about how they all come together and are used significantly in the kingdom. And, of course, he'll deal with some of this in some other letters and in, in Timothy letters that, you know, we all need each other. So that's the whole book of Titus. And it's beautiful. And I'm going to continue walking through the whole thing, of course. But uh, we really honed in on this group of religious people, which is its just ironic that over the last probably five years of my life, it seems like every book we study has this group at the forefront of it. And I used to think that was by chance, honestly. Because I, I was preaching this last year in Tennessee at our home church. My home church. My church. And uh, we've been dealing with James and James dedicates chapter 2 verses 14 through the end of the chapter and it's dealing with rebellious people legalistic, you know, religious folk that aren't filled with the spirit but have an old version old covenant version of Christianity that doesn't exist and we spent like six months in that passage and I was like you need a break, so let's go into Titus <laughs> and they're like you're still killing us it's like, it's not my fault and it, it, it's because in the New Testament that the single greatest deadly, most deadly person you can run into is someone who claims to love Jesus, but does not. They're, they're killers, man. I mean, they're toxic. And so he's been walking through this, and it's beautiful. We dealt with last night, but not on last night, but going into uh, tonight, how to deal with this group. And so when we come into verse 10, which is where he introduces this group for the first time, you know, verse 10 is all about who they are. And at the core of who they are, uh, he calls them if you're looking for, uh, if you were going to break down and and, and kind of diagram verse 10 and look for the actual rebellious person because there's adjectives in there and and there's nouns and there's prepositional phrases and all the things we love about doing English. All of that's going on in the sentence, but if you're really looking for the person who is the religious person he's talking about, the subject of the sentence, he is the deceived one. Now he's translated the deceiver because he's not only himself being deceived, but he deceives other people. He's fool's gold. Don't put your opening. Don't look too closely. That's not what you're supposed to look like. And it's the word deceiver, again, is the word that's made up of diaphragm and deception. And the diaphragm is our terminology for the heart. In our culture, when we talk about Jesus that comes and lives within us, we typically, talks about, we typically talk about how God comes and lives within our they said diaphragm. I think we should bring it back. I think that's awesome. <laughs> Boy, God moved in my diaphragm today. <laughs> a few awesome. So, uh so yeah, the core and the diaphragm, the heart, was the center, it was the seat of all spiritual activity in their life. That's how they talked about it. And we do the same thing. That guy's hard-hearted. He has a bad heart. Oh, he's heartless. We use that kind of terminology. They would say stuff like he's diaphragmless. Oh, <laughs> He's hard diaphragm, okay, that kind of terminology. But in the seat of all the spiritual activity in their life does not reside God, but it resides deception. That at the core of a religious, legalistic, don't have the presence of Jesus operating in their life, opening their eyes, bathing in his nature, they're deceived. That's verse 10. He moves into verse 11, and he talks about the effect that this person has in the body. When you let someone who is religious infect your body, they ruin everything. They not only just cause controversy; they cause division. They're, they have the inability to be to be in in unity with the rest of the body. They're damaging your kids, and, and, and he just he man he just and in fact he attaches to this statement that they must be stopped. They've got to be silenced. He moves into verse twelve, which is what we talked about last uh, night before last. And he goes from verse 10, who they are, verse 11, to their effect in the community, uh, in the body of Christ. And then verse 12 is their effect in the local community. And we dealt with this, I dealt with this quote, Cretans are always liars,
1: evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And he says, even one of their own prophets, and we discovered that their own is not the Cretan
0: people, but it's one of these religious individuals, one of these old covenant relationship with God Christians and this is what their spiritual leadership, and again, prophets throughout the New Testament, man, they're taught. In our culture, this would be like, this is coming from the mouth of the pastor, from the pulpit every single Sunday. I mean, it's in our mission statement. And when you study this, you find that their prophets are, are, are proclaiming this, but they didn't come up with that. That's actually a quote that's been around for 600 years, 650 years before this time. And it was quoted by a poet in, in a, in, I think it's, uh, it was in Greek society the sophistication and sophistication uh, of that kind of upper echelon who's who society and they labeled the Cretan people and that whole, that stuck for 600 that curse stuck for 600 years and by this time it's been adopted by the church wouldn't that be sad if the way the world talks about the world we talk about the world that's the effect that religious people have not
1: only in the body but on our world and so last night we looked at what to do, and
0: he says we've got to rebuke them sharply, which rebuke means expose, and sharply means it's a painful conversation. You need to have painful conversations with this group of people. Which brings us verse 15. And the reason you have to rebuke them sharply and have those painful conversations is because
1: here's what's at stake. Verse 15. And verse 15 reads, and we're only going to at the beginning part of it,
0: to the pure. All things are pure. And next time I come look at this. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. I want to focus with you tonight on to the pure. All things are pure. I want to reiterate uh, some of the kind of my own terminology and picture language that I've been using in my own framework to understand This culture that um, pervaded the church, Um, which on on the surface would seem so Unrelating to us. I mean, listen, we're 2,000 years removed from this time period, close I mean, we don't know what it's like to live in a Jewish culture, this backwards culture That ostracized everyone in their whole world except for them and there were those class, classes of people within them. And they were so rigid in everything. In their structure of living. And, and they operated. This group operated in an old covenant. Established by God relationship. That did not exist anymore. That's so significant. The old covenant. It's not like. It's not like it's a. It's, it's a you know It's an option that's not as good. It doesn't exist. And, and it's not only that it doesn't exist. It becomes adultery. One of the main arguments that Jesus has with the leaders of Israel is he says, you put your traditions above God. So embracing an old covenant view of, of God is not just like you're missing it. You're living in rebellion. He's not going to let you continue in it. For 4,000 years, in the old covenant time period, which is not true because there was Abraham and all that stuff and and it really didn't come around through Moses, but during an old covenant time period, God quickly established, I am holy, I am righteous and you are not. And I love you. And I want to be with you. And I want to protect you. man. I'm reaching out to you. And man, I'm going after you. And Josh said something after the service last night, which I just thought was awesome. Everything we talked about this week Which culminated last night into this intimate relationship that we share with Jesus. That is our inheritance. (laughs) Which is hysterical. That's our inheritance. That's our right. As sons and daughters of God. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. He just loves you. That began. That God does not change. He just wants to change you. So in an old covenant hour, God comes to his people and says, listen, man, I, I want you." And he set up this whole, entire, this whole entire system to reveal who he is and reveal who they are and, and to give protected barriers of how they can walk in intimacy with one another. Kind of like a, a structured, strict, boundary kind of intimacy. And they lived like that for all the way up until the time of Jesus. God is holy and they are not. And they never mixed. Never mixed. God never said, well, hey, I'm holy and you're not. Except for Paul. Paul's awesome. Paul rocks. No, even Paul. Even John. None. No no one's like God. And then the time comes where the Messiah comes and he's different than anybody who's ever lived except for Adam. Paul calls him the second Adam. And Jesus entered into this kind of structure. The law was not given to produce righteousness. It was given to reveal that God is holy and we are not. And Jesus entered into that environment, their culture. We've been talking, we can't get distracted on this, so don't distract me. But we've been talking about the culture in which we live. We live in a We live in a Christian culture. Uh, We do not live in an Islamic culture. We do not live in a Judaic culture. We do not live in in some of the cultures,
1: you know, uh, Hinduism or Buddhism or the Asian countries or the East. We don't live in those kind of cultures.
0: We live in in a a Christian culture. Um, Our being religious in the United States is uniquely tailored to Christianity. Us being religious is not like being religious in Islam. We are completely different. I told the teens this morning, which was hysterical, at least to me. I told him the first time that I got out of the country and I got into a culture that wasn't Christian. We were going through to um, Africa and we stopped over in Germany. We had a big, huge break. And we were like, dude, let's go to the beach. And that was an eye-opener. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like the only one with clothing. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is bizarre. Now, however they, because they thought this was bizarre. You know, there were people who was like, I'm moving here. Okay. There's all kinds of Marines. But however you responded to that, people were like, this is weird. Because that is not a culture that is founded like the United States is founded. But it was interesting, no embellishment, we leave there after a day, scarred, and then we fly We fly to Africa and we go into Egypt. Then we go, to, at least all over Africa in the, in the, in the Somalia conflict right after Black Hawk Down in uh, December of 1992. So we finally get over there. And we go to the beach there, and everybody—all the women, especially—not many men are swimming—but all the all the women are wearing like gowns <laughs> swimming. And again, our response was, "This is bizarre." <laughs> I was like, "What's wrong with the world?" You know? And it's because we you, so re- being religious over there has nothing to do with being religious over there. Atheism over here is different from being athe- atheistic over there. What I'm saying is, we live in a culture. You cannot escape. You can't escape Christianity and live in this country and be an American. Like I'm an atheist, you're still influenced. In fact, I would propose to you, and if you gave me two hours to talk about socioeconomic, religious relationships, in, in and in a, in a worldview, which is so exciting, was it awesome today? It wasn't awesome, to be honest. You're either going to be religious or Christian. Because you cannot avoid the culture in which you live. So Paul, I told you all of that. I told you all of that to say that. Paul enters into this, into this religious culture. okay, And he's writing about And Let me back up a little bit. Jesus was the first one who entered this religious culture like this. And blew their socks off. You understand. What was most phenomenal about Jesus was not the miracles he did and we don't have time for this but if you were to go back to Luke chapter 24 and listen to the beginning of the conversation with the two disciples who were going into Emmaus what they talk about is, is, is Jesus of Nazareth and they don't just talk about the miracles he did they talk about the way that he spoke Jesus talked like no one had ever talked before why? You understand evangelism is not what you do. It's not really what you say.
1: It's who you are. When you are the housing of Jesus, you're just
0: going to stand out, man. You just look different. Your facial expressions are different. That's not the case with this. It's just not the case with this. You can point to him, but they don't see him in you. So we've transitioned from this to this, and just like in their culture, Paul is writing to a culture that is is in their their churches, which is saturated with Judaism, and he's trying to steer them away from being religious and being in intimacy with Jesus, because what happened in Jesus is God invited us into who he is in Christ. If you want to be a Christian, God comes down and lives in your body, and you begin to think his thoughts. Entire sanctification. Initial sanctification. you ever hear this in the church of the Nezariah, what it means to be saved is Jesus comes in your life and you are different. You are completely surrendered. You are absolutely sold out. It's not like you're going to start sinning less later on. You are his. Like, what's entire sanctification? He floods you with his nature. And you begin to see and feel and think and have passion and drive. You hurt the way he hurts. You have his nature living inside of you. That's, that's our message. You become Christ to our world. You become the habitation of God to your community. You trample Jesus all over your kid's bedroom, literally. You spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of who he is. I've heard that somewhere. Isn't mm-hmm. <laughs> that cool. yeah. You're all just like... Oh. <laughs> Now, so what's at stake What he's talking about here? It's a transition from an old covenant to a new covenant. From an old covenant purity to a new covenant purity. Now, first off, I don't know how this is going to fly in the Church of the Nazarene. Well, I should say from the beginning, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm legal and approved. (laughs) (laughs) To the pure, I really wrestled with. a flood. Uzzah. They're bringing the ark. David is bringing the ark. He just thumped the Philistines. He's bringing the ark back to is to set aside and, and dedicate and anoint and, and purify and these things that were in the temple that belonged to God alone. They were sacred. They did not mix. And this, is, this, was, this was so significant because the temple was where God, when it was made, and you had the, you had the tabernacle, but when the temple was made, it was taken to a whole other level. That's where God dwelt. And you just couldn't go back there. There was a veil separate. You can read all of that. It was such distance. And it was this strikingly kind of illustration of how mortal we are. He's an eternal, immortal, holy, sacred God. And when the priest would go back behind that veil, he would tie a rope, wear bells, and hand the rope to his buddy. And with fear and trembling, he would go behind man, he, he touched up with irreverence and what, I mean, he was dropping dead. They just pulled that dude out of there. Try again next year. <laughs> I guess I'm not going back there. That's how, that's, I mean, you that was just, I mean, big time. And it was interesting, because you go back to the tabernacle, we can't get through all this, so you can study it on your own. But if you go back and look at like Joshua, Joshua went into the tent of meeting. That dude, Joshua's one of my heroes of the Old Testament. Moses goes into the tent of meeting. You guys with me? In the background, Just making sure the two that are talking—they're still not listening. It's okay. <laughs> Moses goes into the tent of meeting, and he takes Joshua with him. And when Moses he talks face to face with God, and then when Moses leaves, Joshua goes, "I think I'm gonna chill." And then Moses goes back the next day and says, "Come on, Joshua, like, dude, I moved in. Yeah, I got my I got my TV, my Xbox. I'm just chilling, man." He lived there, lived with God. And you're like, well, then how do you get from there to the temple? It's like as the intimacy with God increased in Israel, it became more pronounced that, listen, we're not buddy-buddy. And you've got to research that out and go after this on your own. But by the time you get to the temple period, and, and specifically into the second temple period, man, I'm telling you, this was firmly established by Ezra and Nehemiah and all of the teachings. God is holy, we are not now. You
1: go into a New
0: Testament, and it's all changed. In fact, two things in the Old Testament. If you have written anything down this week, you want to write this down. Two things in the Old Testament that you need to know. If you're ever going to study the Old Testament, two things. Number one, everything in the Old Testament was given for the relationship that they had with God then, which was this. Everything was in that context. So you can't go and take things out and apply it to us today. Do not do that. Do not come to your children and say, see, the Bible says don't don't mark your skin with ink. Because they're going to email me and I'm going to say, listen, obey your parents, even though they're completely theologically wrong. Okay? So do not pluck something out of that context and try to apply it to us today. Do not go and sacrifice animals and think you're all cool with it. Do not call this a sanctuary. This is a facility. You are a sanctuary. If it burns down, feel free to meet at the movie theater. It's the same thing. Do not take things out of this because in this time period, this kind of relationship, it was meant for them, there and their relationship with God, number one. The second thing is all of what was taught, all what was put in place was for them there, but it was to teach us about what we're going to experience in this. God wove it into into their everyday details of life. For in a new covenant hour, we look back and go, that's what he was saying. The only gospel that the early church had for like 30 years was the old covenant scriptures. You're like, I thought it was this. It was for the number one, but it also served as the number two. Peter stands at the Pentecost and preaches at Joel because he saw it with new eyes? Whose eyes? This is why I was doing this. Give you a quick example of this. Paul elaborates in chapter 2 on this purity idea. There's an old covenant purity that we have in a new covenant. The old covenant was to teach us about the new covenant. The old covenant purity was the sacred things that belonged to God. You touch them, you die. This is so good. This is so good. Because you come into chapter 2 and he uses that language to talk about girls. Which I have Before before her first date, this is the conversation I'm having with the boy. Touch her and you die. (laughs) Numbers chapter. (laughs) Damn, that's no joke. That's the language. The word uh, that's used in um, chapter two, verse five, uh, that she is pure is literally translated sacred, which is the same term that was used. Back in the Old Testament scriptures to describe the things that belong to God. Which should tell you girls how he views you. Uh, dress accordingly. Live accordingly. You are not eye candy. You are more than an object. My wife does not belong to me. And Of course, we all know that already. But <laughs> she is his. She belongs to him. No, no. Which was so incredible. Because in our culture, we say, oh yeah, she's pure. But in their culture, after 4,000 years of this kind of scared to death sacred, and then Paul sends them says, by the way, she's sacred. Everybody was moved away from her. <laughs> we could use some of that in our culture. Right. Everything going on in the old covenant now was to teach us about the new covenant now. So all of this kind of extreme was expressing how much he loves us. One and two. Everything going on in the Old Testament was for them and their relationship with God, the structure, how they were to live, how they were to function, how they were to see. The second thing was to teach them about who we are today, which is huge. Now, knowing that, to the pure, we're not talking about old covenant purity, we're talking about new covenant purity, three quick ideas that I want to give you until I'm doing fantastic. (laughs) Number one, no more protected barriers. Going to an old covenant context, again, the barriers between God and us for some were insurmountable. Anybody here have a runny nose? Raise your hand. Stand up and leave. (laughs) That was, that was then the Old Testament. <coughs> Any women, skip that one, uh, <laughs> anyone have athlete's foot, get out. Anyone have a lifelong ailment? Who here has cancer? Who here has diabetes? Who here has, you go through all that, you're like, man, that's harsh. That's not even the worst part. Who hears Gentile? <laughs> <laughs> All of us. They had the court of the Gentiles. But it was insurmountable. You're like, God is... No, 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 You understand he's just... <laughs> he can't get to him without him. And God loves you. And he wants you to be where he is. But you're never going to be where he is on your own. You're never good enough. And there was layer after layer after layer. And there was family line. And all these kinds of separations. And so he even and even if you made the cut and you made the team, there was all kinds of things, man, you had to be extremely aware of. You did not touch Gentiles. You did not touch anybody who was living in sin. You didn't go into certain people's houses. You had all these, and people were like, if you ever read about the, the, um, the oral traditions and the 613 laws that the Pharisees, their traditional laws that were barricades around the wall? And they think, oh, all those legalistic stuff. It was for your safety, man. Because this is no joke. You don't walk in, you drop dead. Come on, these were, what didn't start off to be evil. In fact, there's so much we can talk about. But if you were to go back when the people came out of Babylon under Ezra and Nehemiah and established the temple, the Pharisees were the heroes. They were the heroes of Israel because they looked at the priesthood and said, listen, that's the last time you're sending us in exile. We're knocking you off. Don't corrupt worship anymore. We are gluing you the word. That was the Pharisees. But it started off fantastic, directed by God, but it became a man thing. Became a man thing. But all that was put in place. I mean, even if you made the cut, you were a man between a certain age and you had, you had the right to come and, and get in there and get into the worship, and then maybe you had the right to go back and do some of the ceremonies and all this. I mean it was. You had to go through the to the purity rites and the sacrifice thing. It cost money to do that. And I mean it was it was huge. You come into a new covenant setting, and we won't go back and read this, all of it. But in John, ooh, like we will back and read any of it. But in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is at this wedding in Cana. And his mom is there. And he brought his 11, 12 disciples, 12 disciples. And she comes up, and you know how moms are. Got this big problem. They ran out of wine for a week-long celebration. Oh, they're going to be embarrassed. Come on, Jesus, you've got to help us. Jesus is like, dude, listen, do not involve me in your stuff. That's <laughs> what he says. She said, like, come on, you're my son. He's like, all right. So, the, so she sends all the servants to Jesus. You, I'm sure you've read this. She sends all the servants to Jesus. And they've got everything that they've, they've, they need to take care of the wine issue. You get the wine mats, all that stuff. Jesus says, this is so great. Jesus has dropped all that. And he points his finger to all these ceremonial washing jars all around the community. That were constantly attended to. Because they, prefer, they, they preserve the ceremonial washing rites of the Jews, which was a big deal. Jesus says, "Go fill them with water." Now they're probably thinking, "Oh, some rabbi. You know, make sure to do our devotions." You know, so he goes out. They, they go out. They do all that in the heat of the day, which is not what they typically did. That, then they come back, pick up their stuff. Now thinking they're going to do it with the wine stuff. Jesus put that back down. Points to one of them. You go some. Take, take some. You go take some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now again, there's no evidence that it's been turned into, and all, these, all the details are left out, by the way, of this, because this is not the emphasis. So whether he goes and finds wine, or whether he goes, which he wouldn't have put in a glass because it was ceremonial washing water, he would have put it in a basin. So whatever he did, it was going to be awkward. But let's say he goes to there, and he lifts it up and finds wine. Dips some out, takes it to the master of the banquet, and the guy goes, this is great. And then the story ends, and John says, it's a sign. And you and I are like, "Why in the world? What's the sign? The sign is, Jesus could have changed, he could have put the water in which he would change into wine. He could have put that into anything. He said, fill up your empty wine vats with water. And then, and then you'd have wine where wine was supposed to go. Why would you choose ceremonial washing jars? Because you don't need them mini- anymore. If you go look at the Gospel of John and every single miracle Jesus does, John corrects it after seventy years of trans- transition because all the other Gospels were, were older. By the time you get to John, they're getting religious. And, and the church is getting routine. And John writes this story to show that, man, you, you don't... All you need is him. We're ceremonially clean in him. We belong to him. So no more protective barriers means
1: that you don't need to, you, you don't need to go through that Old Testament anymore. You go look at all those,
0: all those practicals. Every one of them shut down some old covenant tradition. And by the way, some new covenant tradition, which I won't get into, that's getting me distracted. There's no baptism in the Gospel of John. There's no Eucharist or Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. I think they started traditionalizing that stuff. And you lose its meaning. So, no more protective barriers means Jesus is telling everybody, you're all ceremonial unclean. Which people are going to say, hold on, not the leper. Yep. Oh, yeah, what about the murderer? Yep. Which wasn't possible in the Old Covenant. Yeah, but what about the predator? Yep. No more barriers. Give you one quick story. True story, by the way. Nineteen ninety-six. I was preaching. I was five years old. And I was preaching in Chicago to the Chicago Central District. All the all the churches in Chicago Central came, and they had this big big college and career and youth rally. And I'm preaching there. And they, uh, this is college and career, and a lot of parents and people came, they had the whole children's ministry thing going on. And, of course, I wasn't even married yet, and I'm meeting all the other staff, and the children's worker scared me to death. Now your children's worker scares me to death, a little <laughs> bit. But this this children's worker was off the chain. He was absolutely enormous. And when I met him, he shook, shook my hand, his big old weedy hand. And uh, he was dealing with the children. And then he, but one of the nights, he had the staff deal with them. And then he came into the service. And at the end of the altar call, he comes forward. He's laying on the ground. He's praying. And he's just this big, muscular, huge guy in his late 40s. And after the service, he comes up to me. He goes, great message. And he gave me his testimony. And he talked about how he was a Navy SEAL for 25 years. And when he first got out, he said, I'd go to church with my wife. And I would sit in the back row and cry. Because I knew God could never forgive the things that I did, and He held out His hands, and they were all twisted, and had scars on them. And, you know, He told me some of the stories since I was a marine, and I'd given my testimony. And He said, then one day, I just my heart was beating so hard, I went down to the altar, and God said, I forgave you before you even asked me. Amen. He was the children's pastor at Chicago First Church in Chicago. That is the safest children's department I've ever. <laughs> But a former baby SEAL. There are no barriers. There are no excuses. Well, you don't understand what I did. There's no barriers. We've went from this to this. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You don't qualify for it. Everyone's in. It's this big circle that God says, just jump in. Get your inheritance. No more barriers. To the pure, everything is pure. Trumps all your past. Second idea: no isolated holy places. Again, when you're looking at when you're looking at um, when you're looking at the old covenant idea of purity and, and being sacred, which that word purity is translated sacred in the Old Testament, those were isolated places, like um, Samaria. You were not allowed to go in Samaria. You didn't go into the Gentile lands. Why? You would become defiled. So on the day of, of a feast day, you definitely would not come in contact with the Gentile. You remember when the leaders of Israel wanted to try Jesus and they would not go into Pilate's house? Because if they did, it's 20 they'd go through this whole routine and go outside the camp and do all these and they would have missed everything. So we can't come in your house. So there were places you couldn't go and there were places you could go and then there was... So there was all... And there were high places. Like they had all of these... We know where Abraham went and sacrificed Isaac because he built an altar there. And God said, this is going to be a place where I'm going to dwell. It's a high, holy place. So you had these all over Israel. Those are gone. God is a portable, holy
1: place. Which is here. Yeah, but not the bars. It wasn't Jesus' name.
0: Really quickly, and I want to read you this one. Open your Bibles, and give just a second, to John chapter 4. And we're going we're gonna to skim through this quickly. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. We're going to skim this quickly, but John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. It's his first time at the temple. And I'll give you some bonus that you came tonight. People argue over when did the cleansing of the temple take place. Because in John's gospel it happens at the first festival, the first Passover, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke it happens at the last one. So people say, which you or know, where did it happen? I'll give you my opinion on this. Both. I think every time he came to the temple, he takes someone off.
1: <laughs>
0: I do. I think every time he came to the temple, he flipped over something. He did something outrageous. So he's caused a ruckus. He's come outside. He's now, there's competition between him and John the Baptist. And the Pharisees, it tells us in verse 4, heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. In fact, and they get some other information. They're spying on him. They've got tabs on him. And the crowd that's like just impressing on him, all of these. And he wants to lose everybody. Well, how in the world would you lose everybody? How would you lose the Pharisees so they couldn't follow you? You'd go through Samaria. Why? Because they don't go into Samaria. In fact, you don't walk too close to the border because the dust blows on you. It's defiled dust. Literally. So when they, people would go and journey back up to the north of Galilee, they would go out and around Samaria. You don't go. Jesus runs right through. And he not only runs right through, but he stops at a well. Go down to verse 8. They stop at this well. He's exhausted. And it tells us in verse eight, his disciples had gone into town to buy food, which is really important. If they look at Jesus, he's tired, stay out here, you don't want to go into town like this. You're the Messiah. This is not the kind of place you want to go. This is Las Vegas, seriously. Stay outside of town, stay in Wheeling, we don't want to go in here. So while they're gone, a prostitute comes out, which is hysterical. And Jesus says, hey, what's up, girl? (laughs) Can I have a drink? Listen to what she says. You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. How are you asking me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Come on, man. You guys want nothing to do with us. We're defiled. And Jesus says in the middle of verse 10, we're skimming this. It's all changing. Now she brings up theology, which is hysterical when we do that with Jesus.
1: <laughs>
0: Verse 19. The woman says, I can see you are a prophet. And she brings up, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And you can go study about the effect that Babylon had on Israel and the deporting of people and the importing of their people and the mixing of the blood and why we have Samaritans and all that study it yourself. It's really fascinating. But they had a version of Judaism that was not Judaism. Very similar to our situation today. And again, she brings up the issue. We know where you say God dwells, and we say God dwells here. You say God dwells in the temple, we know where he's at. I, I couldn't get there even if I wanted to. And Jesus is saying, he's gone portable. Seriously, <laughs> he's gone portable. We're not dealing with this anymore. We're dealing with this. He goes on, and he's talking to her. And in fact, he says in verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they're the ones that he wants. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So what ends up happening is verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And she sees him coming, so she drops all her stuff and runs away. She's got 12 thugs coming. And she runs into town, and verse 29 says, you've got to come and see this guy. You've got to see him. I think he's the one. I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the one. And they all come running out. Verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way towards Jesus. Jesus, as we'll find out down in verse 43, not only goes through Samaria, he goes into that town and hangs out for two days. This is not in the text, but I'm telling you it's 100% true. Where do you think he stayed? At her house. Bonus material. Go back when the spies sneak into Jericho and they enter Rahab's brothel. Go through the text detailed. How they don't treat her like a prostitute. They don't treat her like the other men treat her. They don't talk to her like the other men talk to her. They don't use her. And at the end of that stay, she says, your people are coming, I want to be in. And you look at her, you look at her history and how she was abused by the king of that land and he'd sold her she had no family and she had nowhere to go and all the men of that community and the grotesque of that old godly society. She sees a whole different kind of people that come in her life and she's like, I want in. That's what this woman felt. That's what this woman felt. In fact, listen to what the people say. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because, get this, of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay, and he stayed with them two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now listen to the effect that he made on this woman's life. We know this is what the people were saying about her after Jesus left. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. And they're in conversation with a woman and she goes from being a prostitute to the woman that introduced the very Messiah to them. Wouldn't it be something if we could make, again this is not not just looking into the text, wouldn't it it be something if we could make that kind of impact on our world? The idea that we would have to go into our world and drag them here—you could just take him to him. This isn't about growing church, although they need a church body to belong to. But it's not about, oh, you she come see my pastor." Take him to him. Why? What was point two? No more isolated places. You don't need it. You don't need a service. You don't need to be in a. God, God can use you in the middle of the most bizarre routines, the most bizarre circumstances, the most precarious and seemingly unholy positions. God is no longer tucked somewhere in some spiritual service. Wherever you go, He goes. So there's not only no more barriers between God and man, He's out. Everybody's involved. Everybody can be a part. But he's not hiding in some temple somewhere. He's in you. And then the third aspect, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to talk about. There's no more fleshly limitations. And this is so difficult. One of the things that I consistently hear from people is, well, I'm not a very good speaker. Or, you know, I don't like to talk. Or all the other kind of junk that they bring up.
1: This
0: This isn't based on your ability. If you remember, the first idea... That doesn't matter. You don't even need to talk. After you walk with the Lord for a while, and I would like to see me and and Josh and, and some of the other ministers here to elaborate on this at some other time, Steve. When you walk with Jesus for a time, you can get a taste of the atmosphere by just being there. I've been in homes. I've been in places where the atmosphere is just wrong, And you sense it. Jesus says stuff like when he sends out the 72, and and Steve and I were talking about this, when he sends out the 72, he says, whatever house you go in, let what's going on inside
1: of you now rest on that place. If it refuses it, it'll return to you. In other words, it's not going to infect you. Why? Because you're the housing of Jesus, and he that is in you is greater than he is in the world. But
0: the idea is, he says, you can go into a house, and you can change the climate of that place. Now, it's interesting, he didn't say, because I'm going to give you great oratory skills. I'm going to give you a phenomenal sense of humor, like Pastor Josh. I'm going to give you overwhelming good looks and ability, and I'm going to give you phenomenal. The disciples freak out with this. Jesus is getting ready to ascend, and he says, Go into all the world. And the disciples are like, Pause, hold on. (laughs) The whole world? What do we say? What do we do? I write these sermons. Jesus says, Don't worry about it. Just go. It's almost like your presence in the workplace and your intimacy that you have with him is going to affect the environment in which you work. I believe I can prove to you biblically that I'm the spiritual head of my home. My wife is actually biblically in charge of the home. She is the woman. She is the steward of the home. That's the role of a woman. We should talk about that sometime. Maybe, maybe some other day. But literally, that's the woman's role. But I have the spiritual guard, which means my relationship with Jesus up gives you the spiritual protection of the home. Even when I am a thousand miles away. 670. Even though I'm away, my relationship with Jesus provides the spirit. I am the spiritual covering of my wife and my children. It's who I am, which is why I'm tight with it because it matters for my kids. We don't have time to go through this, but if you were to go back and look at John chapter three, verses one through eleven, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about that very thing. The disciples were experiencing God back in the temple. I, I feel like, and just if I were to just be honest with you among friends, honestly, I, I feel like I am, and I think Josh is going to come, I feel like, honestly, and I'm no one special, I feel like I'm a spiritual catalyst in my world, that wherever I go, I'm bringing him with me, and you can take my mouth shut. But I'm going to influence the atmosphere of that room. Because I'm not going to come into agreement or participate with what the enemy is doing there. And he who is in me is greater than anything else. Which means I can take authority over that place. Wouldn't it be something if you could go to your workplace? And if this could just go beyond being a cool sermon we end with during the week. If tomorrow morning you could go to your workplace and just anoint your office. That'd be awesome as a police officer, man. Get the back. Tied their hands behind their back, handcuffed. Actually, leaned over the seat with anointing oil right on their forehead. <laughs> I don't know if it's legal, but squirt <laughs> gun <not>, you know. <laughs> but wherever we go, we just take authority in the place. Seriously, we uh, at our church this last year um, started um, two guys actually moved up to about eleven people. But uh, two guys want me to help them with their sermons, because they're going to be preaching more this year to young guys in the ministry. And I'm like, well, let's meet on every Monday night at 6 o'clock, 6 to 7, and I'll help you. And uh, because my son, I was looking for excuse to go into town, because my son goes to a, uh, a tutor for uh, uh, math. And so they meet there. And we'll get my son and the boy to do it and then I meet with the two guys. So it's working out. Let's start growing, and we need a Starbucks. Which was funny, because when I first brought up, I said, let's meet Starbucks. And I'm like, oh, that's a sinful place.
1: <laughs>
0: let's go to a Christian place like Dunkin' Donuts. And so I was like, dude, are you kidding me? Seriously? And I was like, well, I'm in charge, so we're, we're going to Starbucks. And so I bullied them. So it got up to 11 people, and it was being announced in church, and people were like, coming after me on this You're going to Starbucks?
1: I'm like, yeah. Dude, you should should pick a better environment like
0: Cracker Barrel where everything is overpriced and under portion. It is so much better. You know? And I was like, no. I'm going to Starbucks. I'm going to go plant my behind in the middle of the enemy's territory and I'm taking it back. Flat out. I'm going there. And I'm going to plant Jesus right in the middle of that place. What if that was our attitude? Wouldn't it be neat need to start a Bible study in a bar? Go join the dark club. Seriously. Just take him there, man. Just take him there. Plant him right in the middle of your workplace. Oh, Jeremiah, you wouldn't understand where I live. Dude, take him there. He's portable. There's no more boundaries. Everybody's invited. Take him to leave. Take him to him. Because it doesn't depend on your
1: talent. Does it doesn't depend on your ability. Does it doesn't, I mean, there are so many times. I, I, I don't know what to
0: say. Where, believe it or not, I'm not a people person. I don't do well with, like, talking with people. I, I hide from that kind of stuff. I just not, man, he just goes beyond your own ability. I'm under the impression you don't have to say anything. You just go and under your, under your breath begin to pray, Jesus, let me be a tornado of your presence in this Use me in that manner. That's what's at stake. And I hope you understand what we've been talking about in terms of religious people. The whole context of everything we're talking about. People who are not living like that, I just think you're probably inching closer to this. When you cease to be a dynamic force in your community, I just think you're not... Just don't, I think you're embracing who you are in Jesus. You are to be a, a portable powerhouse in your community. You don't need talent. Just be tight with you. In fact, I tell people all the time, and I don't think this is unspiritual. I don't think, and it's, it's, it becomes a little bit irritating for me because we invent things in the church programs to get
1: people to do that. I know, let's all go skiing. Well, I don't want to go skiing. I don't even really like hanging out with you.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, I know, let's go basket weaving. I, I'm not going. I'm going beekeeping. No one else has bee suits. I <laughs> <No.
1: laughs> It's going to be great, man. It's going to be awesome.
0: Just do what you do, man. Take him, wherever you take him. You don't need a program for that. Just go into your world. Go do your thing. Then you come back on Sunday. And you just drag people from the world with you. Last week, a guy, my next door neighbor, asked me. He says, "Do you like ice hockey?" I was like, "No." He goes, "I got box seats for the Predators and Predators." I was like, "I love ice hockey, man." So he and I and two guys from our church went. We just ganged up on him, man. Took Jesus in the middle of that scene. (laughs) I was like, "Little, did you talk about Jesus in the Bible?" We just talk different than he. guys get curious because we don't dig at each other. We're encouraging. We're not negative. The way we act towards other people, guy spears a beer on my leg. Dude, I'm so cold, It's okay. He's like, I can't believe it. And, no, that's all right. Dude, okay. I do the same thing. I don't even drink. <laughs> and you just, it's the way you talk and the way you have Jesus just oozing from your pores. And eventually, they're going to be like, you are weird. Like, I know. It's him. You just take him. You just take him everywhere you go. You don't have to have any skill. But honestly, I, I, I've heard all my life, well, you know, I never want anybody to Jesus, but God uses some to water. Yeah, I've heard that before. And that's probably true. But i, I hate to hide behind that for, for 50 years. Seriously. When I step to the kingdom, I want to bring truckloads with
1: me. Make room. Not for any medals, not for I just want to bring
0: truckloads with me. Jesus, we love you. What a week. It's a crazy statement to the pure. All things are pure. I wonder if that really means that you sanctify everything I touch. The Uber backseat. The friendships I make. Father, we're not into young men and young women marrying people who are non-believers. But I think there's something really interesting about couples who find themselves married with unbelieving spouses. Paul goes as far as to say that the unbelieving spouse will be sanctified through the believing one. It's almost like, Jesus, if a non-Christian world hangs around me, Their their days are numbered. Let me worm my way into your life. Because I'm stalking you on purpose. Undercover agents. Cells. The enemy has terrorist cells. They'll implant themselves undetected in communities. What if we could do the same? plant them in the police department, we can plant them in the workforce, we can plant them in the fire station we can plant them in the high school oh Jesus we need undercover teachers be planted in our local school system to love those who are completely unlovable not to preach at them, not to wag a finger to love those who have never been loved, come from home lives that are not good send us a door want to close tonight just telling you how much we love you and I wouldn't be surprised if there's a whole number of us that are kind of rethinking our life this evening not bad not evil we love you we've been challenged this week your words penetrated our heart I pray that you help us think that way you live inside of us bring those thoughts to our mind tomorrow get into our heads jolt us nudge us in
1: the middle of our daily routine Hey, if we need a flat tire to get our attention,
0: have at it, Jesus. Just nudge us. I'm with you. We want to participate with you in your thoughts. We want to get attention to your eyesight.
1: We want to ask you to move and open our eyes. We're seeking for your presence in our daily life. We're walking through
0: Walmart, praying under our breath, anointing the cans of food as we walk by. How crazy can we get? want to impact our world? We love you tonight, Jesus. I invite you to Taco Casa tonight. And I want you just to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of who you are all over that joint.